Amen. As we come to Luke chapter 8, the chapter begins really with kind of a synopsis or a summary of what is taking place in the ministry of Jesus at this time. And so it tells us in verse 1, it says that it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, and this is still up in the northern part of the country in the Galilee region, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. From the time that God created the world, recorded in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when God spoke light into being and then created the world over a seven-day period of time. And then the fall of man that took place shortly after that time, ever since then, there have been two kingdoms that have been um, existing simultaneously side by side within God's universe, and you know, at least that we know of. That would be the kingdom of this world, which because of sin is completely fallen, and is headed for a destiny of destruction. And next to that, coinciding with it, is the kingdom of God. And that is the kingdom wherein he dwells, what we would call uh, eternity. And that is something that goes as far back as anyone could ever know, and it will go as far forward as anyone could ever know. And you and I are all born into life in the kingdom of this world, into this fallen, sinful world that is condemned and that ultimately one day will be destroyed. But the good news that Jesus was declaring through his existence on earth and also through the message that he was preaching and showing as he went from place to place is that you and I and all people essentially do not have to live out the entirety of their existence on the fallen side of that uh, kingdom of man that's ultimately going to head towards destruction. But the purpose of his coming was that we might receive grace and forgiveness of sins through the gospel and that we might be translated from the kingdom of darkness and that we would be placed into the kingdom of light. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae and in his introduction to them as he was just kind of telling them the things that he was praying for, he says it this way, what I'm trying to say to you now. He says that when he prays, he gives thanks unto the Father, which has made us able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness, that's the kingdom of this world, and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. And the truth for the child of God is that though we exist currently in a physical state in the kingdom of this world, our citizenship and our names are written in the kingdom which is of God, translated into the kingdom of light. And those are the glad tidings that Jesus is seeking to bring forth to the people is that no longer must you exist within the kingdom of darkness, but you can be translated into the kingdom of light. And I personally lived in the kingdom of darkness in this world for 19 years. And ever since that time, for the past 17 years, I've been a citizen of the kingdom of light. And I can tell you, it is glad tidings. It is good news that God can take us out of an existence that is nothing but destruction, and he can bring us into something that gives us a future and a hope. Well, it tells us that's his agenda to preach and to show the kingdom, and then it tells us his company. It says that the twelve were with him, and certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, 
Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. So this is the wife of the, you know, uh, the Tetrarch, Herod, who is in charge of the Judea region. This is his wife. Uh, of the, his chief steward, and then finally Susanna, and then it says many others which ministered unto him of their substance. Now, it was common in those days, not just with Jesus, that there would be some rabbis, teaching rabbis, that would go from village to village or from place to place teaching uh, according to the message that God had given to them. And it would be common for those rabbis as they would go to travel in companies, There would be those that would uh, come along as associates or helpers or just part of the administration team for those various things. And here we see that same thing taking place in the life of Jesus. And the reason why that would happen oftentimes is because when there would be someone that was particularly gifted or they were making a particular impact through the ministry that they were bringing uh, in a place or to a certain group of people, then other people would recognize the effectiveness of that ministry and they would want to be a part of it. And knowing that they weren't able to do the same thing because they didn't have the same gifting or the same calling, the way that they would be a part of it is by contributing to that ministry either in a practical sense or in a tangible sense, whether it be by giving or whether it be by showing support. Now, if Jesus is traveling with the 12 apostles... And his agenda in traveling with those 12 is that he might soon pass the baton of the ministry unto them. Then his agenda is to preach and show the kingdom. And their agenda is to observe and to assist in all that Jesus is doing. Now, imagine for just a minute all of the logistics that would go into having to travel from place to place. There would be a certain amount of food that would have to be provided. There would be arrangements that would have to be made, expenses that would be incurred. There would have to be clothes that would need to be washed and things would need to be done in order to support the practicality of just moving around from place to place without having a particular agenda or a home base. Now, what if Jesus had to take from what he was doing on a day-to-day basis and he had to give himself to taking care of thinking about what he was going to eat or how those other things were going to be taken care of? It would subtract from the ministry that he had received from the Lord. And thus these women wanting to support and seeing the value in what Jesus was doing, they willingly ministered to him not only of their substance, but of their time and of their labor. And God goes out of his way to mention them, some of them by name, and certainly they will be rewarded for the things that they did. Well, Jesus goes from there and it says, after giving us the synopsis of what was taking place in those days, it says that when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, He spoke to them now by a parable. And here's the parable. It says that a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside. And it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air, or the birds of the air, devoured it. And some fell upon a rock. And as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, And the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried. So he raises his voice from the level that it was at giving the story. 
And now by way of signing off, or really the only application that he gives to the people concerning this parable is that he cries out and he says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the background of this, it tells us that at this point, much people were gathered together. Now, we've already seen multitudes coming out of every part of the land and even surrounding lands out of Syria, the Decapolis and areas of Jordan. People are coming from all around to hear Jesus. But at this point, the multitudes have grown to a point where Jesus changes his style of teaching and the way that he communicates with the people. Up until this point, it had been very pointed, very practical, very clear. You could not mistake the things that he would say. Love your enemies. There's no mystery to what that means or how to apply it. But now he changes and it says that to the multitudes, he speaks by a parable. The word parable really literally just means a coming alongside. And it's really just a story that's intended to teach. It's taking something that we experience in everyday life and using it to illustrate a spiritual truth or a spiritual principle. That's what a parable is. And at this point, Jesus becomes very prolific in giving parables to the people in his explanation or in his teaching of spiritual things. Well, he gives this parable about, really it's called the parable of the the sower for us, if you have a heading in your Bible, but really it should be called the parable of the soils. Because it's a story about a farmer who sows seed and that seed then is sown and it falls in four different areas and where it falls has a different effect depending on the environment that it's placed in. And so that's the parable and then it's followed by the call that if you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying. Now, most of us that are here tonight have probably heard this parable before. Some of us probably many times. And many of us have heard the application of the parable, so we already know what it means. As I just read those words, already in your mind, the application of those things was stirring up, and you're going, oh, another sermon on the parable of the sower. You know, I've heard this so many times before. But imagine for just a minute that you've never heard this parable, and you're in that audience there with Jesus for the first time, and Jesus now gives this parable, and then he signs off, without giving any interpretation or application of it at all. I think if I was there, I would have been clueless. Sure, I understand the picture. Everybody understands a farmer sowing seed in the ground and the variable things that make seed grow. But how this applies to spiritual things, I would have to say I probably would have been one that didn't have an ear to hear what the Spirit was saying in the whole thing. Well, that was true, not just about most of the people there, but even about the 12 apostles that have been traveling with Jesus practically. There would be two questions in the mind of those traveling with Jesus after hearing him say these words. The first question would be, what in the world does that mean? The second question, which would probably be a second layer question for someone who is inquisitive like me, would be, why in the world are you teaching this way now? Why would you teach with parables? Why would you not just declare the truth of it plainly or at least give the application? Why would you give a story but then not say what it means? Well, what Jesus does now with his disciples is that he answers both of those questions. Notice in verse 9. It says that his disciples asked him and they said, what might this parable be? So that's the question. And what Jesus does is in verse 10, he answers the second question first, which is why in the world am I speaking with parables? He says this, he said, unto you, it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, 
but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. What we see about Jesus as we travel with him through the, the Bible and really through the Gospels is that he wasn't crazy about multitudes. Every time the crowd would grow or swell to a certain place where there was just so many people that they were thronging, it seems that he would always purposefully do something to cut the numbers down a little bit. Sometimes he would give a controversial teaching that would stumble the people and they'd say, this guy's whacked, we don't want to follow him anymore. Like when he said in John that he said, my flesh is food and my blood is drink and unless you eat me and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And it says that many went away from him at that time. That was a hard teaching. Even Peter said, Lord, what in the world? What is this? You know, other times he would do other things. He would turn over tables in the temple. He would, uh, you know, he would just leave a particular area if the crowd was getting too big and go somewhere else. And everybody would say, where in the world did Jesus go? And now we see him doing something else. He begins, because the multitudes are so great, to speak to them in such a way that those that are really there because they want to know him, and because they want to know the principles and the truths concerning the kingdom of God, that they will understand. Maybe because God will give it to them in their spirit and they'll hear what the spirit is saying, or maybe they'll have to come to him like the disciples do and ask him what the parables mean. But what this does is it sifts out those that are there just to see miracles or just to be a part of something big from those that are there because they sincerely want to know who he is and they want to walk with him and, and apply his principles to their lives. And so he speaks now in parables. Then he gives the application to them, beginning in verse 11. He says this. He says, now the parable is this. He said, the seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. So laying side by side the elements of the parable with the spiritual things that they symbolize, the seed is the word. Then... He says that the sower, well, the sower would obviously be the one who gives the word. Then he says, those by the wayside are they that hear. And then comes the devil and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So that's scenario number one, is the seed that falls by the wayside, that's trampled underfoot of men. The birds of the air, they come and they rob the seed and they take it up. And Jesus says that that is symbolic or spiritually illustrative of those that come and sit in a congregation or they hear the word being shared one-on-one. -on -one. And as soon as they hear it, it doesn't go past the outer part of the ears, but Satan is right there to rob it up. And they're so careless about the things of God that they don't even remember the things that they heard, much less are they able to apply them to their lives. Now, you and I have probably all at one point either been that person or more recently, we've shared with that person, or we know who that person is. And we seek to share spiritual truth with them, but what we find is that that truth doesn't register. I worked with a man for three years, and almost weekly, he would ask me the question as we would be driving together. He would say, why does man have to die? And it was a perfect open door, and I would share with him and give him the answer in the gospel. And I would think, man, it was great. I'd go home and say, Georgia, I had a great time today sharing the gospel. And not a day or two days or a week later, he would ask the same question again. Why does man have to die? And I'd go, ah, oh, those birds. They just steal the seed. And, you know, and then I would do it again. I'd say, all right, well, you're going to ask again. I'm going to tell you again. Eventually, that man got saved. He gave his life to Jesus Christ. But what I find interesting about this scenario is that Jesus attributes that outcome to Satan. That it isn't 
just an unwillingness necessarily alone, but that there are spiritual forces at work that are keeping that person from hearing. What that should do is it should encourage you and I to pray for the people that we're sharing with or bringing to church or inviting or giving CDs and tapes to, that God would bind the influence of Satan and allow the word that's preached to get past the outer barrier. That's a good thing to pray for when it comes to hearing the word of God because some people, it's given and it's gone just like that. The second scenario that he gives in verse 13 is the seed that fell among the rocks. It says, They on the rock are they which when they hear, they receive the word with joy, but they have no root, which for a while believe, but then in the time of temptation, they fall away. Now, again, for the sower who's sowing forth and giving forth the word, he would understand this principle perfectly. Some of that seed, by the way, Do you know that the weakest link, the weakest element in this whole scenario is the sower? The seed is the word, the word of God, which contains everything that we need for life and godliness in it already. The seed that determines what the outcome of the fruitful crop will be, all of that is contained in the word, and that's what brings forth within the heart. The sower, which is what I'm doing right now, he's the weakest link in the whole thing. This sower, in fact, would probably lose his job. Because he's not very efficient, is he? I mean, he's got seed going everywhere. Seed's going on the sidewalk. It's going in the bushes. It's on ground that's never going to bear. It's not about the sower. It's about what the seed can do. But the seed that fell among the rocks had a totally different experience. It had a little bit of earth. There was a little bit of ground for that seed to germinate and then begin to take root and spring upward. But then what happened is that the sun rose upon it and because there was no moisture in the soil, when the root of that young sprig sought to dig down and go deeper to find water in deeper soils, it was resisted. It hit a rock and the rock wouldn't give way for the root nor would it feed the root the nutrients that it needed and thus the intensity of the sun was too great And the plant gave up. It didn't have the strength to withstand. And so that plant died. And Jesus said there's a whole group of people that when they hear the word of God, this is what happens in their life. They hear the word and they receive it. It gets in. They comprehend it. And with joy, they say, oh my goodness, Eureka. The lights are on. I get it. There's truth. And they get excited about the things of God. But then what happens is that the sun rises just like it does every day, and and, and they feel it, just like everyone else feels it. Life happens. And now, because life happens, and we need to draw from our faith and begin now not just walking in a gift, but now walking in the life that that gift gives to us, the root of the word of God seeks to impose itself within the heart of the hearer. It tries to go down a little bit. It tries to move in to territory that is already filled with something else. And at that point, there's either going to be a place for that root to go and that root is going to divide the ground that's there or it's going to be resisted because of the hardness that's under the surface and the person is going to say, no, I'm not going to receive that. See, God's work within our life always goes out of the surface. It's not just, okay, well, I'm a Christian. I wear a t-shirt. I have a leaf and someday maybe I'll have an ear of corn and I'll be fruitful. But God wants his roots to go deep inside our life that the drawing force of what we become comes from his spirit working within our lives as we have a relationship with him. It's what A.W. Tozer would say. He would say that these are those that receive the gift without the shift. 
They like the idea that Jesus paid the price for their sins and that their names can be written in the book of life. But they don't want the transformed life that he gives when they receive that gift. And when the Spirit of God begins to work in the heart to impose the will of God and the kingdom of God within that life, they resist it. And they say, no, I've got my life. I've got my things that I like to do. And if Jesus, you want to be a part of that, you're welcome to. But if not, I'm not letting any room for you. And so it says that when that scorching comes and that newly germinated seed needs nutrients, it doesn't find it and they fall away. They don't grow. They don't go. And so the thing dies. Then verse 14. The third scenario says, and then that which fell among the thorns are they, which when they have heard, they go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit unto perfection. And so now this third scenario is the seed that falls now among these thorns. And I really believe that this scenario, uh, this situation is the most dangerous of all. And it carries with it the greatest warning of all. And here's the reason why. Because there's nothing wrong with the soil itself in this scene. There's no birds. There's no influence of Satan that's coming in and robbing and taking it away. There's no rocks that would impede the depth of the roots so that it could grow nutrients. The problem in this scenario is not the soil. The problem is competing influences. Is that the seed falls in a place where there is all sorts of other seed also sown and it all springs up together. And the good seed of God's truth and God's life that he sows within our heart can't get a share, a balanced share of those nutrients enough that fruit can be brought forth in the life. And so the thorns and the weeds and the other influences that have been placed within that heart, those grow up with the word of God and choke it out so that it can't bring forth fruit to perfection. Jesus tells us what those competing influences are. He says that they are The cares of this life, those would be the responsibilities that you and I face from day to day. And those things can be of God. And it's amazing that something that can be of God and something that's necessary can be a competing influence for the ground that the Word of God or the fertile soil that the Word of God wants to and needs to use within our lives. The second thing he says is the desire for riches. That is, like we talked about last week, having an ambition and a goal to make it here and now and to build our kingdom in this world. And to live that way and to be centered on earthly things is certainly going to choke the influence of God's Spirit in our lives to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. And then the third thing, he says, the lust for pleasures and for other things, or the pleasures of this life. So responsibilities, our employment, our possessions, and then our experiences. And he says that those things compete and they choke out the Word. I don't know if you've realized this yet, But did you know that our hearts have a limited capacity for how much they can contain? I think I was about 24 before I realized that that was the case. I mean, up until that time, you just can add things to your life. Your life just kind of grows. And you're like, okay, I can do this. And I can work here. And I can stay up all night. And I don't need any sleep. And then all of a sudden, you come to a point where you realize, wait a minute, why do I feel tired? Why is my brain foggy? Why is there, you know, things going on here? And all of a sudden, you begin to realize wait, there's not an unlimited amount of attention span in here for me to just do whatever I want. And I'm going to have to prioritize and I'm going to have to shuffle things and balance things in such a way so as that the main things stay the main things and that the side things don't impede and take over too much of the space that's within me. 
Now, in a normal life, we have to balance work and family and our health and a little bit of leisure and ministry if we're walking with the Lord and maybe some hobbies. We might have a house and things that we have to maintain within our lives, responsibilities, bills that we have to pay. And all of those things are a part of the life that we have. But what we must never do is allow those things to choke the influence of the word of God within our lives so that we cannot bring forth spiritual fruit unto God and unto his kingdom. The one priority that trumps every other priority in the life of a citizen in the kingdom of God is the word of God being faithfully sown and cultivated within our hearts and the constant aeration and weeding of the soil so that the roots of that life can continue to grow downward so that we can bear fruit upward. And that is absolutely essential within our lives. I don't know if you have this in your house, in your yard, but I know this, that where I live, wild rose, dandelions, and poison ivy need absolutely nothing in order to run rampant over the land. I mean, those things are so prolific in this area. And if you want your ground to be useful for anything else, then there's a constant cultivation of making sure those impeding influences are not robbing the good nutrients of it. Fertile soil attracts all seed. And if your heart is good ground for the gospel, be rest assured that there are competing influences that are going to try to come into your life and rob the time, the energy, and the resources that could be given to invest in greater things, richer things, spiritual things. And it's our job to guard our hearts. The fourth scenario that Jesus gives is the good ground. And he says uh, there in verse 15, he says, but the seed that fell upon the good ground are they which with an honest and good heart or noble heart or sincere heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. They hear the word, they keep it, they hide it, they apply it in their lives, and with patience, they bring forth fruit. Don't you wish that word patience wasn't there? Don't you wish you could just make an automatic decision and kind of see it happen all at once? It doesn't work that way. There's a cultivation that takes place of the life of God and the work of God within our lives. And so good ground, good soil is that which has been bordered or fenced up that the birds can't steal the seed. It's been tilled up that the stones are removed and the hard places are taken out, that places of resistance are taken out. And the thorns and the competing influences are held back at bay and put in their place so that the fertile of God's ground is constantly bearing fruit for him to walk in. And that's his will for our lives. And it's a great parable about the power of the word of God that is complete with everything that we need to be mature and total Christians. And it's a parable about the condition of the heart that we have that allows that seed to either flourish or to falter. Now, the natural next question that we all would have having heard this parable is what kind of heart do we have? What kind of heart do I have? What kind of heart do you have as we continue uh, in this and we want to walk with God? What does God see when he looks at the soil of our hearts? Notice what Jesus says next in verse 16. He says, no man, when he has lighted a candle, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but he sets it on a candlestick that they which enter in may see the light. He gives a little parable here that just makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you light a lamp or a lantern within your house, you're not going to immediately take a bucket or a bushel and put it over that light and hide the light that you just lit. 
especially in those days when they would be burning olive oil, which was quite costly and not easy to harvest and to get. You couldn't just go to 7-Eleven and buy more. There was a process involved. So you wouldn't light a candle and then hide that candle. That's the parable that Jesus gives. Now he gives the interpretation in verse 17. And he says, For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. You say, okay, Lord, please, a little more. (laughs) Because I hear the parable, get it. I hear the interpretation, don't know if I totally tie it together. And then he gives the application in verse 18, just for perfect clarity. He says, take heed therefore how you hear. For whatsoever or whosoever has, to him shall be given, and whosoever has not, from him shall be taken even that which he seems to have. So Jesus takes this parable of the lit lamp and he ties it to the parable of the four soils. His application is take heed how you hear the word of God because there's going to be consequential things that happen as a result of how you hear the word of God. You say, what does that have to do with the lamp and secrets being exposed? Well, here's what it is. Is that not only does the Bible, the seed, contain everything that we need to be fully developed Christians, But the Bible is also the light that reveals the type of heart that we have. Psalm chapter 119, verse 105, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That the light that God gives forth is the Bible. It is the word of God and that exposes. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there anything that is hidden from its sight, but all things are naked and manifested before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, the word of God peers into our hearts and it exposes the type of heart that we have and nothing can be hidden from it. And so as we allow the word of God into our hearts, not only will it bear fruit according to the condition of the soil, but it will also reveal the type of soil that's there. And here's how it reveals it. What kind of fruit is coming out of our lives? See, if good fruit is coming out of our lives, that's evidence that God has fertile soil to work with and that his roots are going deep. If we say, well, my fruit is choked and I would be doing, but I can't because, then that's evidence that we are the thorny ground. Good soil, but there's too many competing influences. If we say, well, I believed in God for a while and used to be excited about spiritual things, but now church is dull and I don't really want much to do with it. I want to go to heaven, but the things of God, eh, not so much. You might have rocky ground. And if you say, what Bible study? I'm hungry. Let's finish this thing up so that we can get where we're going. Then that exposes the type of heart that you have. So it's time for introspection to look in and say, what's taking place within my life? And God, what type of soil do I have? And what seed or what ground is your seed falling upon within my life? Well, Jesus finishes, concludes this portion, this passage. And then it says in verse 19 that then came to him his mother and his brethren. And they could not come at him for the press. So there's so many people that are pressing against Jesus that his mother and his brothers seeking to find him can't get close. And it was told him by certain, which said, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to see you. And Jesus answered and said unto them, 
My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Now, when we first hear this, we begin to think, well, is Jesus being disrespectful here? I mean, here his mother and his brothers are trying to uh, get to him. What's the story? Why won't Jesus give them the time of day? Understand this, that in that culture and in those days, and even today in that culture, in that part of the world, family held a much higher uh, value than it does for us in our society today. We kind of put family, um, you know, our mother, our brother, we kind of put that down the list a little bit. And, and, you know, we make time for them when it's convenient for us or we see them on the holidays. It wasn't so and it is not so in that culture and in that society. The relationship of a family bond in that culture was of the strongest of human relationships. And the honor that would be given to family members, whether it was a mother or a brother or anyone else, was a higher honor and a higher place than anyone else would get within that influence. So what's the story here and why won't Jesus give time to his mother and his brothers? Now, we don't know what they want because we're not told. But according to Mark's gospel, at this point in Jesus' ministry, his friends, Jesus' friends, are beginning to think that he's out of his mind. That this whole ministry thing is consuming him a little bit too much and some of the things that he's saying and the claims that he's making are a bit too radical and they want to calm him down just a little bit but they can't get at him so perhaps it could be that they've enlisted his mother and his brothers to try to talk jesus down a little bit and maybe kind of talk some sense into him or see if he can get some rest well jesus's response to that is that my true family is those that hear the word of god and do it Now, understand that family lineage comes through the father. It doesn't come through the mother. And Jesus' mother, though she was highly honored by him, and his half-brothers, which were esteemed and even used by him, they were not the ones that Jesus was concerned about in this. And so this isn't the thing where we look at and see disrespect, but rather we should look at what he's saying and receive it as a great honor. Listen to what Jesus is saying, is that those that are in my family those with whom I will have the strongest relationship bond and those with whom I will give and have and hold the greatest honor are those that hear the word of God and do it. Now, I hope that includes every one of us that are here tonight. John chapter 1, verse 12 says that to as many as received him, that is Jesus, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. We have been adopted into the highest family that exists and ever will exist. And we're citizens of the kingdom and members of the very family itself. Jesus would say in John chapter 14, verse 23, he said, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our dwelling, our abode with him. And so this isn't a thing of Jesus being disrespectful to his mother and his brothers. It's a Jesus, it's Jesus giving to us the call to honor that if we would be those that would heed and do his word, then he places us on the level of his family, the greatest and highest family that exists in all of the universe. Well, after that, it tells us in verse 22 that it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples and he said unto them, let us go over unto the other side of the lake. Now listen. If Jesus says, as you get into a ship, let us go over to the other side of the lake, you are going to go over to the other side of the lake. You're not going to go under the lake or go halfway and fail to make it the rest of the way. You're going to go, if Jesus says, let us go over. So it says that they launched forth. 
But as they sailed, he fell asleep. So they're traveling in the boat, and here's what happens. The conscious awareness of his presence slips out. He falls asleep in the back of the boat, and as far as their awareness goes, it's just those 12 that are in that ship for a time. Well, it happened that there came down a storm of wind upon the lake, and they were filled with water, and that they were in jeopardy. It doesn't say that they thought that they were in jeopardy. It says that they were in jeopardy, meaning that a storm descends, and those storms could be fierce, and the danger associated with that storm was real, and the potential for harm was absolutely there. And so it says that they came to him and they awoke him saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and they ceased. And it says that there was a calm. Now, we could almost read over that and say, yeah, yeah, that happened with Jesus all the time. But put yourself in the scene and imagine what that was like. I mean, we had a storm blow through here tonight just before the service started. And I mean, we, the peals of thunder and the simultaneous flashes of lightning. I mean, it's fierce. And if, can you imagine for one moment if someone here, you know, Pastor Bobby in the prayer meeting, he just stood up and said, you know what, cut it out, stop. And all of a sudden, it's, it's over. Blue sky's back. The birds are chirping. Everything's a great calm. Suddenly things begin to dry. We'd go, oh my goodness, this is crazy. You know, that's what happens. And then Jesus looked at them and he said, where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, what manner of man is this? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, this scene that those 12 went through at that time is the same scene that every child of God experiences multiple times throughout our walk with Jesus as we go through this world. Jesus, in our lives, has plans. The Bible says that he knows the plans that he has for us, thoughts for peace and not for evil, to give us a future and a hope or to bring us to an expected end. He's taking us somewhere. And in the process of those plans, he gives to us instruction. He tells us to do things or he leads us to do things. He says, get married. Or he says, start a business. Or he tells us to start a ministry or Gives us anything. Every one of us is different and the options are as high as the heavens of what Jesus tells us to do. And we feel the impulse, the call of his spirit, the unction from within, and we step out. We say, no, I don't know why, but I feel like the Lord is leading me to go in this direction. And then we do it. And maybe we make an investment of our resources, of our our time, or we make a move and we translate our family across the country or across the world. And we do something major because we want God's plan for our lives, what he made for us. And then he has this thing that he loves to do, is that he withdraws his conscious presence from us. Now, he doesn't leave us. The Bible says, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He who began a good work in you, he's going to be faithful to carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He never leaves. But what he does is he kind of falls asleep, in a sense, in our lives. His, our awareness of his presence diminishes And then the storm comes. And it's always in that order, isn't it? We say, man, I really felt like this is how the Lord led me and everything's going okay, but I haven't heard from him for a while and I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. And then boom, a thousand things tap our resources. Physical ailments and sicknesses come our way. We have problems with our kids and with our family. Whatever it might be, we lose a job and the storm just rages upon our life and we feel like God is a million miles away and we don't, he doesn't even know what's going on. 
sometimes those storms that we face represent a very real danger within our lives. That if those things were to continue even one millimeter further than they do, they really would cause us harm. But eventually we come to a place where like them, we go to him and we say, Lord, we perish. And Jesus has a way of taking a storm that we're going through and almost in an instant, he can cause something to happen that just lets everything just fall into place. Sometimes over the course of a week or over the course of a month or maybe a longer period of time, depending on the circumstance. But he does something where we can look at it and we can say, God, look at how you just faithfully divided every part of this complicated thing and put it in its place. And we say, wow, you're incredible. Then the rebuke comes. Where is your faith? Why did you doubt? Why did you think that his promise was going to fail you when his promise has never failed for anyone that's ever followed him for all of the years the people have been following him? And then we wonder. And we say, God, how is it that you could have such power over every little thing within our lives? It really is true, isn't it, Lord, that not one hair from my head falls to the ground without you knowing it altogether? It really is true, Lord, that you know every one of my days before any one of them is lived out. It really is true that every breath that I breathe is known of you and you can count the number of heartbeats in a day. You really do have your hand on every part of my life. Now, all of us, if we've been walking with the Lord, are familiar with that scenario and situation within our lives. But the question is, why does it happen? Why do we have to go through these storms and experience these difficulties and have to wait on the answer and go through the struggle? Why doesn't he just solve the problems as they come and not make us go through the whole thing. I think that the reason, very practically, is so that you and I will learn to trust his word. That if he says, let's go over, or that I have an expected end for you, or that there's something that's going to come of this, that we would begin to just trust that what he said is going to come to pass, regardless of what the outward circumstances look like right now. That though it doesn't look possible right now, he said this is what's going to happen, so this is what's going to happen. And it's only through the experiencing of those storms and then the resolution of those storms that we come to a realization that he is able to accomplish that which he said. Now in the process of that, not only does our trust in his word grow, but our trust in him grows, the whole package of what he is. And God's intent in that is that we would stop walking according to our feelings and according to what we can see with our eyes and comprehend with our finite minds and that we would believe him absolutely regardless of how we feel, what we see, or what we think. That's his desire for us. The other reason that he allows these things to happen within our lives is so that we will see facets of himself that we didn't see previously. See, these 12 that had seen Jesus at this time already cleanse leprosy, already do incredible works and miracles. They did not know that he had power over the very elements, the wind and the water itself. And when they saw Jesus come through in this instance, their vision of him was magnified because they saw something of him that they had never seen before. Wow, he has power even over the wind and the waves. We had no no idea that he could do the things that he's doing. And that's what God wants to do in each of our lives as well, that we would see and know what he's doing within our lives and that we would uh, live according to that power. And so thus far, as we've looked at just a few verses of this chapter, we've seen four things about the word of God. 
We've seen, first of all, that it's powerful. The parable of the soils tells us that the word of God can make us completely mature. We've seen that the word of God is revealing, that it reveals the type of heart that we have based upon what it produces within our life. We've seen that the word of God is acceptive or adoptive, that as we hear it and keep it, we're embraced by God and allowed into his family. And here we see that the word of God is reliable, that if Jesus says something, that something is going to come to pass. If the Bible says, like it does in Psalm 37, verse 25, David said, I have been young and now I've been old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging for bread. If God said that, then that is absolutely reliable in every one of our lives and it will never fail or falter. And so the word of God, such an important and powerful thing that we uh, walk in within our lives. Um, Let's go just a little bit further. Verse 26, the next scene. It tells us that Jesus from there goes and it says that they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes. So they arrived. They got where they were going, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had demons for a long time and wore no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. Now, I bet none of them had any idea that they were going to get off the boat and walk on to the set of an MTV video being filmed because that's exactly what they find. They're among the tombs and they find a naked man covered with chains who's out of his mind and just flailing about. That's what they are encountered with when they get there. Don't you love it when you get home from work and that's the kind of scene you come into? You've had a storm all day at the office and then you come home and this is what you find. It says, well, when Jesus saw, it says that the man cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice. And he said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he, this is parenthetical, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For oftentimes it had caught him and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters And he broke the chains and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And so they come off a boat and they are encountered immediately with a a very demonic and dark situation. We see a couple of things about the demonic realm here that the scripture points out. First of all, very simply, it points out to us that there is one. That there is a very real realm of darkness that exists within this universe and has a very close-knit relationship within this world. Now, we don't know all that there is about it, but we know enough about it. Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, you can read those scriptures and see where Satan came from, who he is, how he fell, and how that influence is. And God tells us how that we can combat and keep ourselves from the evil of this world. tells us about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. But other than that, there's very little that we know about it. And that's the way God wants it. Romans chapter 16, verse 19 says this. Paul said, I would have you to be wise concerning that which is good and simple concerning that which is evil. And it's not something that God wants us walking around in or trying to figure out or constantly researching and looking into, you know, all of the witches and demons and things that are going on within the world. We keep our eyes upon our Father And we allow him to deal with the darkness that we can't comprehend. We also understand that the the, the realm of darkness is more powerful than fallen man. Look what the devil was able to do within the life of this person. I mean, to possess them in such a way 
that they were driven from society, that they were out of their mind, a supernatural strength that would break chains and driven of the devil into the wilderness. The realm of darkness is certainly stronger than fallen man. But thirdly, and most importantly, the realm of darkness darkness is absolutely not more powerful than Jesus. And it is dreadfully afraid of him. Look at the response of this man that no man could tame, but when he sees one encounter with Jesus, he falls to his knees and he's begging Jesus for mercy in the whole thing. Well, look what happens in verse um, 30. It says, And Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. A Roman legion contained 6,000 soldiers. So can you imagine if this man was possessed by 6,000 demons? And he besought him, or they besought him, Jesus, that he would not command them to go out into the deep or into the abuso. That's an interesting word. Circle it. If you want, close by, you could write Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, and Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you want to understand the abuso and what they're talking about, very interesting and probably very significant uh, in our world in the not-too-distant future. But it says that there was a herd of swine that was feeding on the mountain and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. In, in the other gospels, it says that he commanded the spirits to come out of him and that they would enter into him no more. And they were commanded to go into uh, now this herd of swine uh, pigs that was feeding there on the mountain. And so the devils went out of the man and entered into the swine and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and they were choked. And when they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and they went and they told it in the city and in the country. Now understand a couple of things here, very important to realize, is that when Jesus interrupts the work of darkness within a life, that darkness can no longer enter into that life. When Jesus in his light comes into a human heart, the Bible says that darkness flees. And light and darkness cannot coexist in the same place at the same time. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that seal is not only a seal that keeps him in, but it's a seal that keeps evil out. And understand this, is that if you've been saved, Satan has no place within you. Now, he can talk to you, he can shout, he can torment you, he can try to trip you, and you could fall for it if you walk in the wrong path, but he cannot come into you. You are completely free of that. Jesus does not share space with devils. Um, a lot of people try to blame Satan for the things that are going on in their lives. They have, oh, I have a demon of lust. Well, I have a demon of alcohol. I have a demon of anger. No, 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 no. Get it right. You have a flesh. And your flesh is still geared towards the things of this world. And you can't cast out your flesh. But you can, according to Romans chapter 8, mortify the actions of the flesh by the power of the Spirit of God in you. If you make a choice to walk in the light, God will empower that choice and enable you to do what he's called you to do. This man is set free from Satan, and we're going to see him in a minute sitting in his right mind. We also understand that in Gadara, there was a black market bacon business going on. I mean, we're in Israel here. There's not supposed to be a herd of swine. There's not supposed to be pork products being sold, but we see that they're not exactly doing what it is that they're supposed to be doing, and there's some strange things happening in Gadara, and thus, 
verse 35, that when they went out to see what was done, the men from the city, and they came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they also which saw it told them by what means he was possessed of the devils was healed. Now, why were they afraid? I wonder if in some of them, perhaps there was a little bit of guilt, maybe a little bit of understanding. They knew what happened to this man, and some of them maybe knew that they were at fault. And here they see the one who had power over those demons. And as they take in the scene and they see Jesus, the man sitting in his right mind, look what they say. It says, Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him or begged him to depart from them. For they were taken with great fear and he went up into the ship and returned back again. How wild is that? Here a man is delivered from something that had destroyed his entire life. Satan had raked this man over the coals. And now Jesus comes in, has the ability to set everything right. And faced with the prospect of perhaps having their black market bacon business put out, they politely ask Jesus to leave. And the amazing thing is, that Jesus leaves. But he doesn't leave himself without a voice there. Look at verse 38. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. Jesus, please, can I stay with you? Can I get back in the boat? I don't want to go back into that city. I don't want to go back into that workplace tomorrow. The thing that you've done in my life here is so impacting and so powerful. I just want to be at your feet. I want to listen to your word. You've set my life right and now I want to be continually with me, with you. That's what I want. But it says that Jesus said, return to your own house and show what great things God has done for you. And so he went his way and he published throughout the whole city the great things that Jesus had done for him. And so Jesus sends this man back now with a message. He sent back to give to the people the testimony through his presence of what God had now done in his life. Many of us, often wonder, Lord, why am I still here? Lord, why haven't you raptured us yet? Or why aren't I dead yet? Why in the world, Lord, don't you just take us home as soon as you save us and we can go on into eternity? Here's why. Because although we would desire in our heart to be with Jesus, that that's the the cry of our heart, to be in heaven, there's a testimony that he wants to give to a lost world through the presence of our lives and the testimony of what he's done in our lives. And we're called to herald that message to those that we have a voice with, that they might see the work that God can do, and that if a whole village maybe won't give their life to God, perhaps one by one people will see and know what we were and realize that they need a change, and they also will come to Christ. One last thought, and Anthony, you can come up at at this time. But I want you to realize this. Is that the disciples got into a boat They found themselves in serious, severe jeopardy in a very intense storm. And the whole intent behind the storm that God allowed within their life was the reaching of one man. They landed on the shore of Gadara. They shared with one person who had their life set right. And then they were turned around and they went back to where they came from. And that man had no idea at what cost those disciples and Jesus himself made their way to where he was. And perhaps for some of you tonight, you find yourself in the middle of a storm and seeking to make sense of it. You say, I know that God, you're going to come through in this whole thing. And I already know the wonder that you can do in arranging things the right way. But realize this, 
is that that storm that Jesus is allowing in your life right now might not be about you at all. It might be about the one person that that storm is going to reach because they see the way that you go through it and the way that you handle it and how God works in your life through it. And Jesus subjected his disciples to danger for one soul. That's the value of one soul to God. And it's not just the value of the lost soul, it's the value of our soul. And he's willing to work in our lives, he's willing to use our lives, and he's willing to be glorified in our lives. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we follow your ministry and we see what you did at this stage of it. Lord, when we hear your voice and we recognize for us the power of your word and the essential place it's to have within our daily lives. And Lord, we see your work within lives and how you do what you do through the things that we go through. We ask, Lord, that tonight, wherever we are, whatever we're going through, that we would experience your grace and your touch. So take the things that we've heard, Lord. Make personal application. And we so appreciate, Lord, your constant, steadfast faithfulness in each one of us. And we ask you to write these things in our heart tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.